Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we're expanding our look at interconnectedness, not just looking at the connections in a value chain from soil to soil, but connections between systems, from land access to fair labor to economic and racial justice. I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm joined by Teju Adisa Farrar to talk and learn about how the clothes we wear and textile goods in our life are woven into social and cultural histories, ones that are often based on exploitation, and how making those connections visible allows us to expand the possibilities of what we can create. Teju is a Jamaican-American writer, geographer, and poet. Having lived in five European countries and done projects in several others, for over a decade, Teju's work has centered on political, racial, and environmental justice. Her focus is on environmental and cultural equity, climate justice, alternative geographies, urbanism, and sustainable futures. Teju uses a diaspora lens that is informed by culturally resonant art and activism. She is interested in mapping and documenting Black, read, resilient, and ecological futures. Teju spends her time consulting with progressive organizations, supporting community initiatives, doing transnational projects, conducting equity trainings, and giving talks on alternatives. Teju is based in Oakland, California, but often in other places because she goes where she is called. In this episode, we look at historical realities and the very present conditions of inequity in global supply chains. We hear how rethinking how we tell stories about fiber and dye systems can reshape how we view our relationship to the earth, to each other, and to a more just future. Teju rightly points out that none of us can be a neutral observer to our world. And by identifying our lineage and our perspective, we can bring ourselves into the fold of the conversation and into community efforts, like strengthening our local fiber system and so many more examples and visions that Teju shares. If you're open to it, I'd love to invite you to start with a reading of your poem, Invisible Hands. Yes, I would love to start with Invisible Hands, which is an original poem I wrote for the 2019 Fibershed Gala, The Practice of Belonging. I was told it was invisible hands pushing needles through fibers picked by humans whose lives were seen and are seen as disposable, pulling the thread towards liberation, hoping to stitch a better future for their children. Not the children who will perish in the same position as them, but their children's children's children who will hopefully emerge wounded but free from this current system. Cotton is not innocent and neither is fashion. We are extracting resources, labor, and culture. Oil permanently soaking the underside of fingernails that will never consume even one-tenth of the products their work produces. The world is infinite, but we are not. In fact, we are very finite creatures, living only seconds from our mere destruction, but for Black life, the reality of premature death has always been a part of our consciousness. 
See, 200 years ago, we were picking sugar, coffee, and cotton. Now black bodies drown crossing the Mediterranean and the ocean. This extraction has caused patterns of migration that are far older than your vintage denim. In prison, they make our license plates and use to make the sneakers called Jordans. While Michael Jordan is making multi-millions, Jordans were made in prisons by boys, now men who probably waited in line to buy those same shoes to feel a sense of value. They thought the sneakers would make them feel important. When your life is not valued, you look for value in consumption. I read it was invisible hands who allowed me to lead the life I live, but these people are not invisible, they are overlooked. We, the people, the least evolved species on this planet, taking up more space than we can honor in this moment, we have an opportunity to refashion our existence. I mean, redistribute our ignorance into resilience. I mean, reimagine sustainable futures, expand our consciousness. I mean, we, the people, are only a few steps away from liberation. We, the people, here and now can wipe the tears of the next generation if only we realize the earth has been here we are just a tiny instant in the universe it's humbling from the cliffs of privilege it may seem like fashion is separate from violence all of our consumption stems from the same system but luckily we can change this we must grab these visible invisible hands not hiding but working in plain sight we must grab hold of each other, not dominating, but working collectively towards freedom. We are not each other's enemies or rivals. We are each other, literally, and there is no separate survival. As we walk through this world, clothed in the tethers of society, we must remember that every single fiber is connected to a lineage and a story. My ancestors all across the Americas, from the southern United States to Jamaica, picked, labored, and toiled the soil so that I and you and you and you can live in a global world and have important intellectual feelings. So now I and you and you and you have to honor their presence and their wisdom with our choices in the fight towards freedom. I am cut from a different cloth, a quilt of resistance, made colorful by the plants naturally growing from the dirt. I am the hemp seed 10,000 years ago. I am because they were. I am because we are. From the minerals in the loam to the threads in my clothes, together we can lead the way like Harriet Tubman did with the North Star. Only together. Thank you so much. Teju, that was incredible. Um, it, hearing you share Invisible Hands brought me back to the 2019 gala and the opportunity to hear you read the poem at the event, which was so deeply moving and, and continues to be, again, hearing you speak it again this time, just brings out so much clarity and, and crystallization for me around fiber and dye systems and historical lineage and opportunities we have to make changes. So in terms of um, the origin of the poem, could you say more about how the references that you draw together in Invisible Hands relate to belonging to place? Several years ago, I was working with an organization called the Whitman Institute, which is a philanthropic organization who believes in trust-based investment in nonprofits. And one of their grantees um, is an organization called Voice of Witness. And Voice of Witness produced a book called Invisible Hands, which was about 
workers globally who do a lot of the work that we don't see um, in terms of how our products are produced. And the idea was that because of globalization, that these social relations involved in creating the products we use are completely invisibilized, that we no longer see people or the work that they're actually doing, all we see are the products and the financial transaction we make to buy them. And that this whole labor supply chain is basically made to not be seen so that we don't recognize all of the exploitation and violence involved in it. And so there's this idea of invisibility. And a lot of times we say that there are people who are invisibilized, but it's not so much that that they are or we are invisibilized, it's that we're overlooked. We're not invisible, um, we're just made to not be seen. And so the idea with talking about some of the histories of fiber, specifically cotton, and the way that our products are made in prisons and in other places was a way to make seen, make visible these things that we tend to not see in our daily economic realities, to bring to the surface some of these connections between the history and production and globalization um, and migration that we often don't see unless it's forced in front of our eyes. And I was trying to use a poem to unearth these sort of connections, to just remind us of why it's so important to work towards sustainability and equity in producing things that we use on a regular basis in daily life. And so that was really the foundation from which I worked for to create this poem. And knowing the work of Fibershed and at that point really just being introduced to the work of Fibershed, I was so pleased by this idea of creating local, regional, thriving, resilient economies that are based on climate beneficial farming, that are based in small businesses, that are based in cooperative forms of ownership, and really how do we make clear the need for this on a wider scale? And how do we make clear the importance of Fibershed's work by recognizing the different lineages and realities of exploitation that currently exist. So that was how this poem came to be. I think a lot of what you said there around surfacing the connections relates to our mission with this humble podcast um, around connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture. And I think the poem that you shared that you wrote, Invisible Hands, really expands that perspective feels like it expands it to encompass a really dynamic, multi-generational and multi-spatial view, like you just shared around the globalized forces and the history um, connecting the dots and clothing. And so I'd love to hear more about your process in terms of how you pinpoint, you know, which threads to pull in to your work. Uh, you work as a poet and a writer and a geographer as well. And in Reflecting on your words in Invisible Hands, it seemed to tie strongly back to your positionality statement as well, um, which you have on your website. And so I was wondering if you could take us through a little bit about what positionality is and how the interconnections of identity help to frame work like the poem that you created and creating that perspective on fiber systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you said, as a writer, poet, and geographer, my focus is really on space, place, and identity. And positionality figures heavily in that. I come from a very academic background. Both my parents have PhDs, and I did research for a good part of my young life. 
and the academic field was always central to my thought process. And at the same time, I recognized the ways in which it was exclusionary and also had different ideological positionings that it claimed to be neutral. What I mean by that is there's this idea, especially in social sciences, that you can be a neutral observer, that when you observe others, other things, other people, other processes, that somehow you can take yourself out of it. And I simply disagree with that. We are all subjective beings as humans, as conscious humans. We see the world through our experience and our perspective. And in that sense, we don't always know what blind spots we have. And so what I do in my work with positionality is thinking about how we not ignore ourselves, but bring ourselves into the fold of the conversation, into the systems that we're talking about, into the cultural context that we're trying to explain, to think about our different privileges, our agency, our blind spots, and the different ways that we react to the world, to power, to violence, to oppression, to think about how our perspective specifically informs the way we do the work that we do, the way we choose friends, the way we have our values, the way we choose our principles. And so the positionality statement on my website was me modeling positionality mainly for the academic community, but for everyone who works towards social transformation or some form of social justice, economic justice, political justice, education, any, any realm of sector that is thinking about, talking about, and trying to articulate what's happening in our worlds. I believe positionality is central to that, to say, this is where I'm coming from. These are my limits. These are my privileges. This is where I have agency. And as a result of all of this, when I'm speaking about something, I'm not speaking from a neutral position, which doesn't exist. I'm speaking from my position. And also, in some cases, I think it's important to state why you do the work that you do, um, especially considering that academia is primarily white male centered in terms of the theories that we think of as as classical theories it's important to be clear about why you've come into the work that you're doing and usually in academia the people who are expected to talk about why we come to the work are women and people of color uh, usually men and specifically white men are not asked to justify why they're doing the work. And so I feel like everyone should have to talk about their experience to the work and why they're doing it. Um, and so positionality allows for us to be honest with ourselves so that we can be honest in the work. And that is why it's so centered in my world. And I specifically position myself as a black Jamaican American woman who is middle class. Regardless of how much money I have or don't have, I come from a middle class family in the sense that I've always had access to higher education. My parents worked for colleges and universities. I have social capital. So even when I don't have a lot of money, I know how to access resources. I know how to fill out bureaucratic forms. I can access these institutions of power that some people who I grew up with don't know how to access because they don't have social capital. So specifically for me, when I'm talking about not only being part of certain black communities and growing up in places such as West Oakland, which was considered one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Oakland at the time, I make it clear that I had opportunities or access to opportunities that other people who lived in my geography didn't have, and that I was able in some ways to not only transcend that geography, but stay in Oakland when gentrification started to happen because of these same privileges. And so 
I, I hope to bring this positionality into all that I do to make it clear where I have agency and where I can redistribute some of my privileges towards other people who have less so. Yeah, and I think it, it ties well into what I wanted to touch on as well, which is that you're you know, really generously sharing some of these learnings and practices that you've cultivated outside of an academia context. You're taking those practices into a series you've been working on called Shaping Alternative Futures, Connecting the Dots of Intersectional Justice. And the series is available through Zoom, um, as so many things are at this moment. Um, so it's a virtual workshop series, and you've been offering it on a, a sliding scale to make it accessible to folks. And I, I would love if you could walk us through why you felt called to create and facilitate this series you know, in this contextual moment as we're now several months into a, a different way of life through the coronavirus pandemic. Actually, this series came to be in part from a conversation with Rebecca. We were chatting about alternatives and participating in alternatives and why we felt like there was some inaccessibility with people knowing about and participating in alternatives. And one thing I suggested is that people don't always recognize explicitly the interconnectedness of all these different injustices that we face. And so we often talk about issues as single issues, as if they are disconnected from a system. And so my feeling was that if I highlighted the ways that these injustices are connected to a larger system, maybe people would understand not only the importance of investing in alternatives and participating in them, but seeking out alternatives and trying to find the people who are already creating systems outside of the current one that exists, for people who are already creating practices and businesses and projects that are outside of the capitalistic framework. How do we get across the fact that there's not one economy, that there are many economies, and that the hegemony on this idea of economy is in there is one, is one of the reasons why it's hard to find alternative ways to, to get the things that we need, which are food and housing and healthcare. And so this conversation with Rebecca led to me creating the curriculum for this Alternative Now series, which is pretty wide ranging. And the idea of it being wide ranging is to say that all of these things that we think are disconnected are actually very intimately connected. Here are some historical examples why. Here are some current examples of alternatives. Here is where you can position yourself in this conversation. Um, and let's talk more about not only breaking down the barriers to the current world that we live in, but imagining new ways of living in a world beyond this current one. And right now with the pandemic, we're being forced to think of alternative ways of living. In some cases, this is a good thing. In other cases, it shows the great inequities of who can participate in alternative life and alternative practices to the capitalist system and who cannot. And so what is the way that we can make alternatives more accessible to everyone, regardless of their specific positioning in society? This Alternative Now series really aimed to focus on interconnected justice, leading us to alternatives and hoping that people can understand the ways that they can participate and redistribute some of their privilege for others to participate 
such as sharing food, for example, if they have a garden, if they have access to land, and thinking about not only small ways, such as sharing food to disrupt the system, but also larger ways, such as positionality and resisting inequitable global trade agreements that may come up, especially with the U.S. being such a huge economic global power um, in the globalized system that we live in. And like you mentioned, it is a really wide-ranging series. There's a lot to encompass. Um, and you've also really drilled down into uh, a set of workshops with core themes around identity, land equity, intersectionality, storytelling, and movement building. And I was curious, how do these specific elements bring about some of that nuance and interconnectedness across issues? Yeah, so I think identity plays a large part in the conversation around injustice in the world, but especially in the Western world, especially in the U.S., where the country is sort of based on a racialized capitalist system. And often we decide who has identity and who doesn't. If you are non-white, you have an identity. If you are white, you sort of don't have an identity. You just get to be American, whereas I am African-American or someone from Laos, Asian-American, or someone um, from Mexico is Mexican-American. Whiteness is sort of collapsed and invisibilized. So the idea with focusing on identity is showing how identity is really the core of this country. And when we understand the ways that we've played into these constructed identities, we can understand how to unravel some of them and think about different ways of identifying, different ways of relating to the earth and to each other. And that's where the aspect of land access comes into it, because we also know that this country was built on plantation slavery using enslaved Black African labor, which started the real initial denigration of the land and some of the environmental degradation that we see today is a direct result of plantation slavery. So the relationship of Black injustice and Black slavery in this country is directly related to the degradation of the environment and the land that this country is on, not to mention that the reason why there is country that is called the U.S. is because of the displacement of indigenous communities across North America, um, not only being killed because of diseases brought by white European settlers, but also being actively displaced from the land with treaties that were not ratified and other ways of annexing land from indigenous people. So our relationship to identity in this country is also directly tied to our relationship to the land. And through this sort of linking of identity to the land, we start to think about the stories that were told in American education, in the U.S. educational system. What are the stories that were told about ourselves, about our values, about who belongs, about who doesn't belong? And in this conversation around injustice, part of what has happened is the unearthing of stories that we weren't told about other sides of the U.S., about 
the African slaves who were brought over from the continent having vast agricultural knowledge, in some cases even more agricultural knowledges than the people who abducted them, and then being able to use these knowledges as a way to cultivate land, allowing for the economic development of this country. We don't hear that side of the story. We rarely hear about the, the Black women abolitionists who worked alongside suffragettes, knowing that even when women got the right to vote, Black women would not get the right to vote until much later on. And so as we start to unearth some of these stories, we realize that the issue is with storytelling and that we don't actually tell all sides of the story and that we don't actually tell the whole truth. And as uh, Bell Hook says, the heart of justice is truth telling. So if the idea is to be justice centered, then we need to tell the whole truth. And that requires us to rethink how we tell stories about injustice and freedom and liberation. That also sort of ties into this conversation about alternatives and how do we imagine and articulate these alternatives based on all of these stories that we weren't told about the development of this country and about the reality of some of the people who are left out of the American story and are left out of the European story as well. I mean, globally, Black knowledges and Black realities have been left out of the story of Western development, even though we know the continent of Africa, the Caribbean, and Latin America were crucial to the development of Europe and the United States, particularly as it pertains to having certain products, um, having certain food, having certain uh, coffee, tea, sugar, tobacco, all of these things that we know are important to not only the economic structure of import and export, but also to culture and daily life in both Europe and the US. So the idea with having such a broad range of topics is that all of these somehow link to our understanding of justice, and that's our understanding of what could possibly be based on what was. And when we understand more of a holistic picture of what was and what is, then it expands possibilities for what can be. And I really hope that what people get from this broad range of topics is that when we understand that so much of the injustice in our society is by design, it has been designed that way, we can design away from injustice and design towards equity and justice. We could transform society because it's not the natural order that there is racism that was constructed for systems of power so we could deconstruct it. And I hope that by linking all of these sort of large macro topics to micro interventions, we can slowly, um, or maybe more quickly at this point, but maybe in small steps, string together a new future um, that completely transforms all of these things that uh, have built our societies and no longer serve us. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. You're so skillful in your work connecting those macro systems to small steps and observations as well. And I'm thinking of an article you wrote recently called The Political Act of Getting Dressed, where you traced through your lineage and through history to illustrate how clothing is political. Because as you write, that cotton was the US's first luxury commodity picked by Black Africans forced into slavery. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about some of those through lines from that devaluation of the labor of enslaved Black Africans to the systems that get us dressed today. Yes, 
So um, obviously slavery was a labor issue because enslaved black people were working for free for um, a few centuries. So we know that labor is at the heart of the devaluation in agriculture. And because a lot of agricultural labor was for free in this country, in general, it created a devaluation of the people who work the land. And so that extends to anyone who works the land, regardless of race. So we know that right now it's also hard for white farmers across the Midwest and across the country. We also know that it's hard for Latinx workers who work on farms with very low wages, um, sometimes not even minimum wage. We know that Black people not having a lot of ownership of farms and land is directly related to slavery, plantation slavery in the United States. And so the idea is that as a result of slavery, everyone involved in stewarding the land and cultivating from the land and producing from the land has lost out because of slavery. That whole sector has become devalued. And obviously there are layers of injustice because about 95% of farmland in this country is owned by white people. That is a direct result of European settlers and slavery. But we also know that over 80% of the people who work on the land currently are Latinx. And of that over 80%, over half of them are not born in the US. And in some cases were forced to migrate because of multinational corporations taking over land in their countries, making it impossible to compete. So they have to migrate elsewhere to a different geography to get work on land, work that they are skilled to do, or sometimes work that they have to do, sometimes the only work they can do. And so all of these sort of historical realities of plantation slavery, the global shift from regional economies to a globalized free market and large multinational corporations, large agricultural conglomerates, has created some of these inequities including a lack of black ownership of land and a lack of black farmers, including migration of Latinx communities to work on larger farms in the U.S., including it being difficult in general for any farmer in this country to compete with the large industrial agricultural sector that we have. Connecting this idea of cotton as the first U.S.'s luxury commodity, which it was, it also allowed the U.K. to take over the global textile production because they were getting free cotton picked in the U.S., exported to the U.K. Previous to the U.K., India, which is one of the largest producers of cotton outside of the U.S., was a huge player in the global textile market. And as a result of plantation slavery, the UK was able to overcome them because of how much money they saved on labor costs. And so specifically, when we're thinking about textiles, we know that textiles, the way that people try to save costs is on labor. And that is a direct result of plantation slavery and having free labor for all these years and specifically free labor done by black people. And so as a person of African descent, a black person with heritage in the US and in Jamaica, although they didn't pick cotton in Jamaica, they picked other and produced other products that we use in daily life. But as a descendant of enslaved Africans who picked cotton, I know that the fact that we can all get dressed with 
cotton-based products and not only our clothes, but in our towels, sometimes in our food, sometimes in other things that we use as a result of the sacrifices that my ancestors made and this whole exploitation of agricultural labor. So although on a daily basis, I'm not literally thinking about plantation slavery, I recognize that in order for me to be able to go to the store and buy cotton products, that the cotton economy was produced as a result of my ancestors. Right. Like you said, it's not maybe every time you look at a piece of cotton clothing, but rather I think it's highlighting how, you know, these norms of the fashion industry of the system that produces our clothing is so rooted in exploitation. You know, there has not been, at least in in modern times, kind of a like a golden era that we could return to that would clothe us all. And I think that's important in terms of, as, as you talk about in your series, shaping alternatives for the future. And in that work, in the, the series you've been doing, you emphasize that in terms of pandemic life, that there is no going back to normal. I think we're really seeing that right now in the fashion industry, for instance, there's a lot of kind of unraveling of the fragility and the injustice of the economics with various business models basically collapsing with bankruptcies or supply chain disruptions. And certainly there has been a really necessary uprising with folks rallying around workers needing to get paid through the the pay up campaign. So I just want to acknowledge that and that there's so much in those systems that even if we could go back, why would we go back (laughs) to them? Right. (laughs) So I would love to hear on a slightly more hopeful note, if you have, or if you'd like to share some specific hopes for going forward toward alternative futures. Yes. Regional based economies that are based in collective ownership, sustainable and regenerative land practices, inclusive practices, sharing skills, sharing knowledge, sharing land, sharing food, finding ways to be in community even when we can't physically be close, Um, finding ways to give people resources to make more of what we use, giving them resources to have the time to make and learn how to make more of what we use, giving people space in cities, specifically space in urban environments to grow and learn how to plant food, to have access to fresh organic food, um, to recognize all of the diversity of food and fibers that we have in our regions and our respective regions and thinking about how to eat more seasonably, how to reuse clothes and other fiber products, how to support people who are using regenerative land practices, how to learn more about indigenous land practices, how to think about giving land back to indigenous people and redistributing land in a way that is not necessarily based on family because we know if mostly white families own land then 
land will continue to be in the hand of white people and we want to expand who has access to land, who is able to not only work the land but have equity in the land because when you're working in an agricultural sector, the best way to get value from it is to actually have ownership of it. So that's really important. How do we talk more about community and restorative justice practices, which I think are related to having access to food and having ownership over some of the land that produces products that we have? How do we focus on healing trauma with people of color and the black community and specifically connecting black people back to the land in a way that is not exploitative? How do we expand our idea of globalization, not as something to create the most profit, but as something to create the most multicultural exchanges in a way that is equitable and does not favor the colonizers, but rather is more about where the resources actually come from and how we learn to value them in the global market. So that will sort of change the geography of value because we know most of the natural resources that we need for our computers, for other things that we have in the Western world come from places in what is termed the global south. So how do we literally shift the geography of value in terms of resources? I'm thinking about expanding our idea of productivity, not only connecting productivity to work, but connecting productivity to rest, connecting productivity to having time to be with your family and make food and sleep and maybe make some other things that you need and read. And so some of the things that I'm imagining that I just mentioned, I hope will find a place in these new conversations about changing the way that we are in society because we don't really have a choice. The global pandemic has forced us to slow down. So in that slowing down, how do we make sure that we can not only mitigate some of the consequences of inequity, but create a world where those inequities don't exist at all, where people don't have to choose between having a job and taking care of their child, where they don't have to choose between putting themselves at risk for getting COVID with paying their rent, where they don't have to worry about getting evicted because they're out of work. How do we secure housing? How do we secure food? How do we secure other ways of justice and mental health outside of prisons, outside of policing that we know have not made our world less violent or more safe. And so what the pandemic is helping us question is, has the way things have been actually made us feel better or more safe or more loved or have more of what we need? And we know that it hasn't. So why go back to a world that we know doesn't give us our basic needs when we have the opportunity to try to start creating a world where those basic needs could be met if the imperative is not to profit, but if the imperative is towards community um, and towards regeneration. So those are some of the things that I'm hoping we can take more seriously and talk about more widely. Thank you for elaborating on such a dynamic and interconnected vision. One piece that you mentioned was expanding access to the land, and I think that's really relevant across different fiber sheds. And so I was wondering if we could explore that a bit. And when you're talking about land transfer, what does that mean to you? And are there models that come to mind that engage communities in approaching this? Yes, when I think of land transfers, one of the first things that comes to mind is a community land trust. 
And community land trusts are nonprofit organizations where the board of the organization is community members and they buy up the land so that the land is separate from market factors such as gentrification. And what happens through a lot of community land trusts is continuing affordable housing, community gardens, other types of community-based activities. And this allows low-income or working-class residents to participate not only in what happens to the land that they live on, but making sure that they can definitely and indefinitely live on that land. And so there's several different models of community land trusts. Um, one that comes to mind is Cooperative Jackson, which is in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm also thinking of the Shumi land tax in the Bay Area of California, which is for indigenous communities in the Bay Area to buy back the land that was originally their ancestors in the form of a land trust. The other thing that comes to mind, which is more popular in Europe generally, but the UK more specifically, is this idea of the commons. And the commons is this sort of idea of collective governance of land by a community, not by a state, by the state or by market factors. So it's this belief that there are certain natural resources that individuals and communities need to survive, such as land, um, habitable earth air, water, and that these should be owned by communities in a specific region and should be governed collectively by these communities. And so there are different ways that organizations and individuals and states have gone about transferring land. One example is of Yale Union, which is an arts organization, and they transferred their entire building and land to the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. And they did this over a series of processes and conversations with this Native arts organization, understanding that their building and facility is on Native land, and that one thing that they could do was transfer that building and facility to a Native-based organization. And another organization I want to name um, is called Acres of Ancestry, and they have started the Black Agrarian Fund. And the idea of the Black Agrarian Fund is that it's a community-controlled land and financial cooperative, and it supports Black farmers and people who are landless who want to return to the Black Belt in the South to work on the land, to work on eco-cultural um, traditions and get back connected to the land. So I think there are a variety of ways that collectives, nonprofits can go about transferring land via land trust, this idea of the commons. And also on an interpersonal level, most of the land is transferred through families intergenerationally in the US. But in many cases, people have the opportunity to give their land to a land trust or to give their land to a collective of people who will work on it and manage it collectively. So I think we need all levels of land transfer when we're thinking about future generations. So on a state level, on a regional level, on an interpersonal level, as well as on an institutional level. It's really exciting to hear about all these different approaches, like you said, at different scales. And we'll definitely link those in the show notes. And I think you know, it's so relevant, especially here in the U.S. I'm so glad you mentioned international models, but there, there are statistics for the U.S. around how there are about 400 million acres of land changing hands as thousands of farmers and ranchers retire. And yet there's so many challenges for the next generation of agrarians 
Um, so I'm, I'm drawing that stat and information in part from the Agrarian Trust, which is a land access model for next generation farmers. Um, and like you said, there are so many of these different approaches that are really looking to work hand in hand, either at the interpersonal level or institutional levels. And I think in light of so many of the things we need to be taking seriously and the opportunities we have to make change, sometimes talking about clothing can seem a bit like a curveball. But in that article I was noting before about that you wrote about the political act of getting dressed, you uh, wrote specifically about style and how getting dressed can go beyond aesthetic expression and actually be a way of reclaiming your value in a world where systems have consistently devalued Black people for so long. And so you wrote about getting dressed in style as a practice of reclaiming your value in society. And I'm curious about what role you think getting dressed might play in shaping alternative futures. Well, for those of us who have the luxury to buy sustainably produced clothing, I think that is a direct way to support alternatives and to support sustainably produced, locally produced clothing, although in some cases it's more expensive, the more that we're able to support it, hopefully the more that it'll become accessible in terms of price for other people. For those of us who feel comfortable thrifting, who feel comfortable wearing secondhand clothing, that is a way to support alternatives. And I know, especially as a Black American person, that often secondhand clothing and thrifting is a result of poverty. And so there are people who feel shame in doing that. And so I also want to recognize that it may be a luxury and it may be a privilege to feel comfortable going into a Goodwill or a Salvation Army and choosing clothes and recognizing that you can wear these clothes and not feel devalued. But in a society where Black Americans are devalued, sometimes wearing something new, wearing something expensive is a way for us to claim our, reclaim our value. So I would love for that mentality to shift, but in the process, recognizing it as a reality and recognizing that as our society starts to shift to value Black people more, some of these pathologies that we have around secondhand clothing and poverty will also shift. Um, so I think the alternative is to practice sustainable cloth buying in whatever way is accessible to you and to not shame people when they don't practice sustainable cloth buying in the ways that you can and understanding these histories of trauma that may have caused some of us to not feel comfortable spending a lot of money on a specific product of clothing but spending a lot of money on a different type of clothing that may not be sustainably produced or produced locally. Um, and trying to find ways to make those clothes that are sustainably produced and produced locally less expensive so that those of us who can't afford a $90 sweater would be able to afford it maybe if it was $30. And also that has to do with pay equity, giving people not only livable wages, but wages where they can thrive and buy the things that they need without worrying. And so maybe a sweater that's $30 seems expensive, but if we all have the amount of money that we need to get paid to live 
in a way where we feel dignified, then that won't seem like such an issue, especially if we know the farm that the fiber came for, for the sweater, especially if we know the person who designed the pattern for the sweater, especially if we see the person who made the sweater selling it and we know exactly where our clothes come from. And part of what our society has done currently has made it almost impossible for us to truly know where our clothes came from, who makes them and what they're actually made of. So having not only natural fibers, but locally sourced fibers and locally manufactured fibers, I think are really good ways to practice sustainability in the fashion industry, as well as supporting small labels, small businesses, smaller brands that maybe don't have as much recognition, but are trying to do clothing in a way that is not exploitative, that values the land, that values the people who make the clothes and values the people who wear the clothes. Yeah, I mean, I think everything you just shared highlights how there there is so much that goes into how and why we wear what we wear. And I know you also touched on this in a, a workshop you facilitated at the 2019 Fibershed Gala. We had these breakout sessions and you did one around mapping the connections to our clothing. And I was wondering if you have recommendations on how people who are listening to this might begin to map some of the influences in their own style. I think it's a great idea to just take stock of the clothes you have and think about why you have them. Try to figure out where they come from, how you learned how to dress yourself if you were dressed by someone else, if you don't think about getting dressed as a sort of experience, if you do think about it as a sort of experience. My grandmother loved clothes, and so I have a lot of her clothes. And to her, getting dressed was really important to middle-class Jamaicans. Getting dressed, looking nice, looking presentable is a very important part of the culture when you're going to church, when you're going to events, when you're going anywhere, really. The idea is that you can put on clothes, you can ordain yourself, you can present yourself in a way that says, I have value, I care about myself, and therefore I care about the things I put on my body. And so my grandmother, not only loving clothes, but loving custom clothes, had a lot of clothes made and made sure to keep all of her clothes. And so when she passed in 2018, almost all of the women in my immediate family got some of her clothes because she had clothes from all of these different eras in her life, from all the different weights she had been. And so even though all of us have different body types, we have something of my grandmother's. And because my body type was the closest to hers, I have many of her clothes. And even before she died, I would often go help her reorganize her closet and she would give me one or two dresses that she doesn't wear or that she thinks would look better on me or that she could no longer fit. And I found that not only like the exchange of a relationship between a grandmother and a granddaughter, but also just like the migration of clothing and style to a different place. So when I was 12, we moved her from Jamaica up to the United States because most of us were in the United States at that point, and she brought all of her clothes. And so there's 1960s Jamaican house dresses, there's 1970s um, skirt and blazer sets that she had made. There's 1980s dresses that she had made for different events. There's all of these different histories of clothes in her closet that are not only about 
where they were made in Jamaica or how they were made custom for her, but also her time in life, what she was doing in the 60s, what she was doing in the 70s, what she was doing in the 80s and so on. So when I wear her dresses, I feel like it's a multi-generational experience and it's a multi-geographical experience. I'm not only paying homage to the Jamaican heritage of my grandmother, but also um, my current reality of being a Jamaican American and being someone who really appreciates clothing that has very specific cultural specificity. My dad is a anthropologist and his region of focus is pre-colonial West Africa. So he loves African shirts and these very specific dashiki styles and other types of styles. And so I also grew up with a real love of African patterns, African fractal fabric, and these sort of specific cultural elements to West African culture that are not directly mine, but as a descendant of West Africa, I feel sort of connection to. And with a father who studies pre-colonial African material culture, I also feel like it's deeply embedded into the way that we were raised to understand material culture as a lens into a society, as something that could be different across cultures, but somewhere in everyone's society, there's some relationship to material culture. And the way that we experience that through clothing allows us to really appreciate the various cultural structures that exist in our society and to value and appreciate difference rather than being fearful of difference. And so I also use clothing as a way to say that being different is something that we should value as humans and not something that we should be afraid of or something that we should make judgments about. And so my style specifically is heavily influenced by not only the societal factors that make me who I am and my identity, but also my personal relationships with my family members and how they experience the world and how that's been translated through the clothes that I've been given and the clothes that I get for myself. Uh, I, I think that's just such a great note to, to end on, if that's all right with you. I mean, the material culture as a lens and, and celebrating all the different things we can learn you've given us so much to continue learning about. And I know that from everything I've experienced of your work, you have so much more to facilitate and to lead people through. So if folks who are listening want to follow along and stay tuned for future offerings, where can we find more about your work and follow along? You can always find me on Instagram at Miss Tej, M-I-S-S-T-E-J. And on my Instagram, there is a link tree with different links to trainings I'm doing, things I've written, information about me. I also have a website, www.tejuadisaferrar.com, which is my full name, T-E-J-U-A-D-I-S-A-F-A-R-R-A-R.com. And those are the two main ways that you can connect with me. I'm pretty responsive both on my website and on Instagram. And those are the main places that I highlight how you can collaborate with me and some of the work that I'm doing and the writing that I'm doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo people. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts described in this episode by visiting www.fibershed.org. There you can join our newsletter to hear the latest updates or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching Fibershed. 
You can learn more about Teju's work and some of the projects you heard about here on Teju's website, tejuadisafarrar.com. That's T-E-J-U-A-D-I-S-A-F-A-R-R-A-R.com. And you can visit our show notes for this episode and all episodes at fibershed.org slash podcast. And that will have direct links to Teju's work and to some of the projects we talked about and other relevant articles on these topics. And I wanted to share with you that Teju will be leading a panel discussion at the 2020 Fibershed Wool and Fine Fiber Symposium. That's our main annual event. And this year it will be held entirely virtually. So it's going to be from November 12th through 14th spanning three days and all online, you can head to fibershed.org slash symposia. That's fibershed.org slash S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A, where you can reserve a ticket to hear the live discussion. And if you're listening to this after the event has passed, please head to that same webpage and you can look for video recordings of the panel and many other activities from the symposium. It means so much to us that you're listening to this podcast. If you'll please leave us a review or share it on social media, wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, that does really help us reach more people. And we'd love to hear what's resonating with you. The show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, who's a member of the Northern California Fibershed Producer Network. Every day I love.